0: Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me this morning. I'm going to open them up to the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So we continue to work our way verse by verse through this incredibly important and powerful uh, letter. And in these days, we're working our way verse by verse through the great 8, through Romans chapter 8, which has been such a blessing to so many Christians over The centuries. Um, Last time that we were here in Romans 8, we were taking the aerial view of uh, verses 14 through 17. Or really, we went way up and we looked at verses 11 through 17 um, to see what the big message was. What was the main point that Paul was teaching? And now it's time to come down out of the sky and to put our feet on the ground. We've seen the forest. And now we're going to come down and look at some of the glorious trees that are in this passage. Um, We're going to look at individual verses, individual phrases, because this is one of the most wonderful passages in all of the Bible. Um, It's worth it. Let's begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 14, and verse 14 is our focus this morning. So beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So let me ask you a question about verse 14. What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? Our verse says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? What would have to be true of someone for us to say, That is a Spirit-led man. That is a Spirit-led woman. Would have to be true of that person. Most important of all, can you say that you are led by the Spirit and are therefore a son or daughter of God? People speak in different ways about being led by the Spirit. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, Well, the Spirit led me to do this, or the Spirit led me to do that. I wonder what you think about statements like that when people make them. Someone told me recently that a man had said to him that the Holy Spirit had really given him a great peace in his heart about his decision to divorce his wife. He had no biblical grounds for divorce, but he said that he felt that the Spirit had given him a real peace about divorcing his wife. What would we think about that? I was also recently told by someone that that he had felt the Spirit leading him to invite somebody to church. Now, would we deny that that was the Spirit leading him? You see, this is a really difficult issue. Uh, The pages of church history are full of people who believed that they were being led by the Spirit of God to do this or to do that, some for good, some for ill. And then there are others who say, well, I've never felt that. I've I've never felt this this impulse, this pressure on my heart. I've never heard the Spirit speak to me. Is there something wrong with me? Am I not a Christian? Because I've never heard God speak to me that way. So this is a really tricky issue, and, and it's a subject we need to think very carefully about. The dangers here are very real, would it surprise you if I told you that some of the greatest harms that have ever come to Christ church in the history of the world have come through men who truly believed that the Spirit was leading them to do something? Unfortunately, people often use the idea of the Spirit's leadership as a way of justifying or giving themselves assurance about things that they themselves want to do. In fact, there are many stories about people in the past who genuinely believed they were being led by the Spirit and they did awful, awful things. I'm going to give you just one extreme example to make my case. and I know this because in college I was an English minor and I was um, assigned to read the book Wheeland, And that book is based on a true story of an actual set of murders that took place in upper state New York many years ago. And the real historical story is this. There was a man in New York named James Yates. He lived in Tom Hannock, New York, with his wife and his four children. And according to the historical accounts, on one night in December, the Yates family had a religious get-together in their home. Uh, They were Shakers, um, a, a charismatic communal denomination. And... Among the other folks that, uh, that came was James's sister. And after the other folks from the church had left the home, James's sister stayed behind. Uh, she was looking to take a trip to New Hampshire the next day, and James agreed that he would take her in the morning. She says that when she left her brother's house that night, the whole family was gathered around the Bible for their time of family Bible reading. The infant was in the mother's arms, The other three children were sitting nearby. According to the accounts, James Yates says he saw a light. He had a vision. And that the Spirit told him through that vision to get rid of all the idols in his life. The voice gripped him, told him to rid himself of every love that he had other than his love for God. So the first thing he did was he took his Bible and he threw it into the fireplace and watched it burn. He then took his axe and went out to the family's sleigh and hacked it to pieces. Next were the family's animals. And according to the accounts, the spirit then said to him, by his own testimony, he said that the spirit told me, you have yet more idols. Look to your wife and your children. And what followed were a set of gruesome murders um, far too violent for me to detail here. But here's the thing. To the end of his life, Yates believed he had done the right thing in killing his family. When he stood trial, he confessed to every one of the murders and he told the judge that he was right to commit them because the Spirit of God had led him to do so. He was fully convinced in his heart that he had been led by the Spirit. Now that is obviously an extreme example. But it teaches us that words matter. And that we need to make sure we have a proper understanding of what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. B.B. Warfield is surely right when he says that there are few subjects so intimately related to the Christian life of which Christians appear to have formed, in general, conceptions so inadequate... Or positively erroneous. That is, most Christians have a very poor understanding of what it means to be led by the Spirit. And yet, Paul brings up this subject right here, verse 14, to encourage us. There is great joy. There is great comfort in being led by the Spirit. There is glory in being Spirit-led. If we understand the leadership of the Spirit correctly, it is a doctrine that will do much good for our souls. So, our verse says that the Spirit led are the sons of God. What does it mean to be Spirit led? Six questions. We're going to fly through them, okay? Six questions. Number one, who is led by the Spirit? Number two, where are they led? Number three, when are they led? Number four, and crucially, how are they led? Number five, but what about answering a couple of common questions? And number six, what are some implications for our lives? So number one, who is led by the Spirit? Already, many Christians go wrong. Even on this first question, who is led by the Spirit? Many think that being led by the Spirit is something that only happens to certain Christians. They think that spirit-led people are super saints, or, or people of great holiness, or, or very godly, very mature Christians. Uh, immature Christians, mediocre Christians need not apply. Being spirit-led is something for special Christians, for, for the upper crust of Christians. But is that what the Bible teaches? Look at what our verse says, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So Paul is making an argument about those people who are led by the Spirit. And he says those people who are led by the Spirit are Christians. They are children of God. Spirit-led people are Christians. Notice he doesn't say they're a certain type of Christian. Notice he doesn't distinguish spirit-led Christians from other kinds of Christians. Rather, he seems to equate being spirit-led with being a genuine Christian. Now, I have taught logic before, and I know that someone might say, wait a minute, that's a fallacy. The verse doesn't say that all Christians are spirit-led. It says that all who are spirit-led are Christians. And those two aren't the same thing, are they? Um, If I say all sparrows are birds, that's not the same thing as saying all birds are sparrows. Right? It doesn't say all sons of God are Spirit-led. It says all the Spirit-led are sons of God. But I think we can say conclusively that Paul is teaching that all true Christians are Spirit-led. Why? Why? Because as we've seen throughout the book of Romans, and especially in chapter 6, and even especially lately in chapter 8, all Christians are people who grieve over their sin. All Christians are people who want to rid sin out of their lives and kill it. And they don't do this according to the flesh. How did Paul tell us we do it? By the Spirit. This is the connection between verse 13 and verse 14. The connection between verse 13 and verse 14 is... In Paul's mind, there are Christians. And Christians put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And these people who put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit... Are Spirit-led and are therefore sons of God. In other words, when you put 13 and 14 together... There's no doubt that in Paul's mind, this is all Christians. Let me just read verses 13 and 14 again. You hear it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die... But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So here's the logic. All Christians are sin killers. All sin killers are led by the Spirit. Thus, all Christians are led by the Spirit. And if I had a chalkboard up here, I'd put that in a logical syllogism and you would see that it's indefensible. All Christians are spirit Led. it is not something you have to earn it is not something you have to achieve being spirit led is one of the great gifts that Christ gives you the moment you first believe the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside every single one of us if we are Christians and why has the Spirit come to dwell inside every one of us to lead us Christ is our good shepherd, and he leads his sheep. How does Christ lead his sheep? By his word, through the Spirit that resides in every one of his people. Dear friend, if you are here this morning, you are, as a Christian, being led by the Holy Spirit of God. Both the saint who has walked with Christ for 70 years... And the brand new believer who believed in Christ seven minutes ago is now being led by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? Number two. Where are Christians being led by the Spirit? That is, where is the Spirit taking us as He leads us? It might surprise you to learn that there are only two verses in the whole Bible that talk about being led by the Spirit. Only two. One of them is right here. The other is Galatians 5. And in both passages, the context is about the same thing. Holiness. Being pure. In both contexts, Galatians 5 and Romans 8, being led by the Spirit is discussed in terms of the Spirit leading us into Christ-likeness. In other words, the Spirit is not mainly leading us to a better situation or away from pain or away from suffering. The Spirit is not mainly leading us to this college or leading us to that job. The Spirit is not leading us to take karate lessons or to write a book or to trade in our car or to say something to that person. In the two passages where this kind of language is used in the Bible, the Spirit is leading His people into holiness. Into Christ likeness. He is leading us so that on the last day. We will be found blameless for our bridegroom. And that on the last day. We will be fit for heaven. So the spirit lives inside every believer. The spirit is working to lead every believer. He's leading every believer into holiness. Number three. When are Christians being led by the spirit? When? When? Because you see, the common thought among many in our day is that being led by the Spirit is a sporadic thing. The Spirit comes upon you. He gives you a sense. He gives you an impression. And then He leaves. It's an occasional thing. It's a, it's a momentary thing. But neither Romans 8 nor Galatians 5 will allow that. Our verse will not allow that. The word that is translated led in verse 14 is in the present passive indicative, which means, Greek scholars, it is a continuing action. It is a continuing action that is being done and does not stop. It continues every moment. In other words, the idea is not of the Spirit coming upon you and leading you for a moment and then leaving. It's rather the Spirit is constantly leading you throughout your life, one moment into the next moment into the next moment. It's something that is always happening in the Christian life. Dear Christian, it is happening to you right now. The Spirit is working in you this very moment to lead you towards sanctification, to lead you towards holiness, to lead you towards Christlikeness. I'm waiting for the uh, questions to come after this sermon. Question number four. How does the Spirit lead? How does the Spirit lead? This is the core question. I'm going to give you five quick answers. First, the Spirit does not lead by mere guidance. The Spirit does not lead by mere guidance. That is, it might be that someone here has that kind of picture in your mind. You're living your life, you're making your decisions. You are as free as can be, and the Spirit is a guide that you are constantly choosing either to pay attention to or to not pay attention to. So it's like the Spirit is constantly speaking inside of you, and you constantly have a choice. Am I going to do what the Spirit says or not? It's up to me. right? It's like, have you ever seen the, 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 the good angel and the bad angel on the shoulder? And you have to decide, which one am I going to listen to? That's how some people think of the leadership of the Spirit. Well, the Spirit's always, you know, calling me to do the right thing. The devil or my flesh is over here, and I'm always choosing which one. Maybe you've done a a tour of a city or a museum before, right? And, And the tour guide can tell you this. He can point you that way. She can point you this way. But you always have the freedom to leave the tour and to go off and to do things on your own. That is not the way the Spirit leads. The Spirit is much more than a guide. The Spirit has taken a hold of us. When we came to Christ, we gave up our own leadership. We have declared that we will no longer follow the whims of our flesh, and Christ does not leave us leaderless. Jesus became our captain, and he took hold of us through the Holy Spirit. Orfield says it this way, The Spirit has taken hold of us as a man seizes the halter of an ox to lead it in the way we would have it go. Or as an attendant conducts the sick in leading him to the physician. Or as the jailer grasped the prisoner to lead him to trial or to the jail. We were slaves to sin. But a new power has entered to break that bondage. Not that we should be set rudderless, adrift on the ocean of life. No. But that we should be powerfully directed on a better course, leading to a better harbor. The Bible tells us again and again that the Spirit doesn't just speak to us. He actually exerts power upon us. For example, listen to Romans 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So it isn't simply that the Spirit is speaking to you saying, you should really be hopeful. And then it's left to you whether you're going to be hopeful or not. No. It's that when Christ says, make my servant hopeful, the Spirit actually exerts power and through believing causes us to abound in hope. This is more than just pointing the way. This is actually bringing us, right, into the things that God would have us do. Ephesians 3.16, Paul was praying, and he says that according to the riches of his glory, you, may you be granted to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. In other words, in this prayer, Paul was praying that the Ephesians will have greater faith. But he knows that they cannot have greater faith on their own. They must be empowered. And he says, he prays that Jesus through the Holy Spirit will lead them, empower them, compel them, move them into greater faith. So the Holy Spirit is more than just a guide. He actually exerts power upon us. But, number two, in this five answers here, the Spirit does not lead by force. The Spirit does not lead by force. You see, in Romans 8, 14, Paul does not use the same word that Peter uses when he talks about the prophets writing Scripture being borne along by the Holy Spirit. The idea is not that the Holy Spirit leads us as if we're a leaf floating in the stream. And he's doing all the work, and we're just along for the ride. Mount Hermon, the journey to holiness is not one in which we sit back and relax and wait for the Spirit to do His work. That's not how it works. Rather, our wills, our own hearts, must be engaged. You and I must make real choices. We must take tough action. We must make decisions if we're to become like Christ and be holy. Quote Warfield one more time. He's so helpful. He says, Although Paul uses a term here, which emphasizes the controlling influence of the Spirit of God over the activities of God's children, he does not represent the action of the Spirit as a substitute for their activities. If one is not led, in the sense of our text, when he is merely guided, it is equally true that one is not led when he is carried. The animal that is led by the attendant the blind man that is led to Christ, the prisoner that is led to jail, each is indeed under the control of the leader who alone determines the goal and the pathway, but each also proceeds on that pathway and to that goal by virtue of his own powers of locomotion. That was long. I hope you got it. Let me explain it. In other words, though the Spirit has grabbed a hold of us and is taking us on the path to holiness... He's not dragging us. We must move our feet. He is grabbing us. He is exerting power. He is setting the direction. But we must actually work alongside the Spirit in this move towards holiness. This is why we speak of both the preservation of the saints, the Spirit preserving God's people, and the perseverance of the saints. God's people must actually be striving for holiness. From the Spirit's side, He's going to make sure that all of God's people become holy. But from our side, we are actually to be working, willing, striving to become like Christ. There must be running the race. There must be fighting the fight. We must be making use of the means of grace, praying, loving others, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. If the ox refuses to move, the man doesn't pick him up and carry him. If the ox refuses to move, it just proves that he is still bound to his own will and not the will of his leader. A person who refuses to do what is right, a person who continually refuses to fight sin, a person who continually refuses to pursue holiness is not going to be picked up and carried to holiness by the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's only proving that the Holy Spirit is not his leader at all. And that no true change in his heart has ever happened, and that this person has never come to know our Lord and our Savior. So the Spirit leads us not merely as a guide, He exerts power upon us. He pulls the rope that is on us, He puts His hand on our shoulder and moves us along. And yet we also must move ourselves. He chooses the destination, holiness. He chooses the way to get us there. He tugs at the rope through the scriptures and through His mysterious work in our hearts and we work. Number three, the Spirit shows us where we're going. This is what leaders do. They point to a destination and help us to get there. We don't choose the destination. The Spirit has chosen where he is leading us, and it is indeed holiness. But here's the thing, the Spirit has not kept this a secret. The Spirit has not kept the It's not as if we're blindfolded. And the Spirit says, trust me, I'm leading you somewhere, but I'm not telling you where. No. The Spirit has told us where we're going. He has revealed to us that we are moving towards likeness. We are moving towards fitness for heaven. And I would simply ask you, if that's the Spirit's goal for your life, is that your goal for your life? If that's where the Spirit is leading you, to be more like your Savior, is that where you want to go? Is that the kind of person you want to be? Do you trust the Spirit? You say, well, I I like holiness, Justin, but you know what I really like is happiness. I wish I could say the Spirit was leading us into happiness. Well, dear church, doesn't the Bible teach there's a connection between holiness and happiness? Sure. The path to holiness might mean some difficult days right now. But why is the Spirit working to make you holy? So that on the last day you will stand before God blameless. And you will enter eternal life. Eternal joy. Eternal happiness. Moreover, even here on earth, a life of holiness in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of persecution and self-denial, even here on earth holiness causes us to rejoice. Holiness is a wonderful place. Its pastures are filled with kindness and gentleness. Holiness is mountains of love and compassion. It has a bedrock of righteousness and faithfulness. Holiness is the very character of the God you love. Holiness is the description of your Savior. You know, they have these dating websites now and you pull up the profile of the person you're interested in. You pull up the profile of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it? It's holiness. This is what He looks like. This is who He is. And we love Him for that. And the more we see that happening in our own lives, the more it calls us to rejoice. And church, are we not longing for the day when we will be perfectly holy? You ought to anticipate that more than you would ever anticipate a trip to Disney World, right? You think, oh, you know, we're going to go to Disney World sometime soon. This could be so exciting. What about the day when you are perfect in mind, body, and soul, and you get to stand in the presence of God forever? At the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. This is where the Spirit is leading you. He is leading you to greater faith, greater holiness, preparing you for that day. Number four, and the how question. The Spirit leads us to holiness by compelling our wills in that direction. Again, the Spirit leads us to holiness by compelling our wills in that direction. He doesn't violate your will. That is, the Spirit does not force you to become holy against your will when you don't want to. Uh, It is impossible to be truly loving deep down if you want to be unloving. Rather, the Spirit works to compel your will... So that it desires love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Spirit works to prompt you so that you willingly take the steps you need to take. How does the Spirit compel you? He compels you through preaching. How does the Spirit compel you? He compels you through your Christian friends. How does the Spirit compel you? He does so through trials where you learn vital lessons for this life. The Holy Spirit compels you in a hundred different ways, opening your eyes, helping you to see the beauty of godliness. Every step you take towards Christ-likeness is a Spirit-empowered step. And yet it is a step that you truly take. Number five. The Spirit leads us one step at a time. This is still the how question. The Spirit leads us one step at a time at a time he's leading us to holiness and the pathway is slow can I get an amen (laughs) is not the pathway slow progress is slow the spirit does not lead us at a swift pace if the spirit led us into holiness quickly he would do so pulling us with his strong arms and we would be floundering on the ground being dragged behind as he pulled No, the Spirit is very patient with us. He gently coaxes us through the Word. Sometimes He uses the rod of discipline to keep us moving. He uses the warnings of Scripture. He uses the precious promises of Scripture to keep us moving. But one step at a time, through the Word of God, coming to us in a million different ways, the Spirit is leading us, even now, towards holiness. Okay, question five. But what about, okay, questions? I know there are questions. Let me answer just two common questions. Number one, does this mean that the Spirit is not leading when we're choosing a college, we're choosing a job, or in the little decisions that we make every day? Am I saying that because the Spirit is leading us into holiness that, that He has nothing to do with those other decisions? No. I believe that the Spirit of God is indeed leading us, even in those kinds of decisions. But remember, the Spirit's goal is to make you holy. So when you're facing a decision, I don't think what you should expect is a sign from the Spirit about which school to go to. I don't think what you should expect is a a miraculous vision or a voice from heaven about who you're to marry. Rather, The Spirit is leading you into becoming a wise, mature, discerning person. The Spirit is leading you. When you find yourself having the maturity to ask, well, which of these two jobs is going to give me the best opportunity to glorify God? Or when you're choosing a college and suddenly you find a real desire in your heart to ask, which of these two colleges is going to be near a healthy church where I can be loved for and cared for and where I can continue to serve my God? When you find yourself asking those kinds of questions, the Spirit is leading you in a way that is much bigger than if He showed you a vision. Christ-likeness is the goal. And if you find yourself becoming holier, asking those kinds of discerning, mature, godly questions, the Spirit is leading. And you ought to be very encouraged and excited. The Spirit wants you to evaluate everything according to God's truth. The Spirit does not want you relying on your emotions, your feelings, impressions on the soul. What He wants you relying on is the truth of the Word of God. It is stable. It is firm. You can count on it. And when you feel yourself relying more and more on the teaching of Scripture to give you light in the everyday decisions you make... You have more assurance. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. And the Spirit really is making some progress in this soul of mine. Question number two. Does this mean that the Spirit never uses impressions on the soul or a sense of peace to lead his people? Again, I think that the Spirit sometimes does indeed use those means. I think there are times when the spirit working in your soul can give you a strong impression. Or can give you a sense of peace about a decision. But I think two warnings must be immediately given. Number one. We must all remember how susceptible we are to being deceived. Because there are other spirits in the world than just the Holy Spirit. You cannot. You must not assume that because you have a peace in your heart about a decision, that it is the Holy Spirit that has necessarily given you that peace. Because there have been other people who believed that the Spirit had given them a peace about something that was blatantly against the word and the will of God. First John 4, 1 John 4.1 says we must test the spirits. And so this is my second warning. Anytime you sense an impression upon your soul, or a sense of peace concerning a decision, make sure that it squares with the teaching of Scripture. Judge what is unclear by what is clear. Judge what we can't be sure about by what we must and know. What we must know is absolutely sure. This is why we can say that it very well may have been the Spirit leading, leading him, right, by that... Say it again. This is why we can say that it may very well have been the Spirit leading my friend to invite that person to church. Does that sound like a holy thing to do? Does that square with the teaching of Scripture? I find it doubtful that it was this, uh, a, a demon leading my friend to invite somebody to church. Right? That squares with Scripture. So we can say, you know what, we don't know with absolute 100% certainty. But, but I, I would say, yeah, that, that seems like something the Spirit would lead you to do. But that person who says the Spirit has given me a peace about divorcing my wife on unbiblical grounds, we can say with 100% authority that was not the Spirit of God. Because He is not a God of chaos and contradiction. He doesn't say one thing in the Bible and another thing through the Spirit. The Bible came through the Spirit. It was the Spirit who inspired the Word of God and spoke these things. And guess what? When it comes to the words of the Spirit... We don't have to rely on feelings when you have it in black and white. So on things like that, we can say with absolute certainty, that was not the Spirit of God. Maybe another spirit, but not the Spirit of God. So be very careful. Test the spirits. Let me close with this. If, if we as a church were about to make a big decision, okay? let's say we were talking about bringing on another pastor or uh, moving like our location or I mean something big like that I would long for and I would call on us to pray that the spirit would give us a real peace about that decision but where would I want that peace to come from I would want the spirit to give us that peace because let's use the third pastor illustration because we can see from scripture that that man is biblically qualified I would want the Spirit to give us peace through helping us to see that that man meets the standards of the Word of God. And if the Spirit gave us a peace about bringing on a man as a pastor who does not qualify according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, well, then that is not the Holy Spirit giving us that peace. We must test everything according to the Word of God. All right, what are implications for us? I'm only going to give you one. There are many, but I'm out of time. One implication, and it's this the whole point of verse 14 is to encourage us. You see, this verse says that if we perceive the Holy Spirit within us, we can be sure that we are sons or daughters of God. We can be sure, we can have assurance of our salvation, assurance that one day we're going to be holy, assurance that one day we're going to be in heaven. We can have that as we perceive the leadership of the Spirit in us. Have you ever been led by someone you trusted? Here we are, weak and frail. We don't even know the way to holiness. We are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to, lo- to leave the, lo- the Lord we love. We're so prone to wander away, to get stuck in the mud, to find ourselves lost forever in the thrills of this world, vanity fair, right? We're, we're prone to get stuck and left to ourselves we would be. So when we find ourselves, when we perceive it all, that we're having a holy thought, that suddenly we're concerned about the needs of others, That suddenly our heart is feeling real love towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the leadership of the Spirit. And that is a strong evidence. Dear child of God, you can be confident. You are one of Christ. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8 verse 14. Sew it on a quilt. Put it on your wall. Okay? It is a wonderfully comforting verse there any here and you do not know our Savior I would beg of you run to him run to him confess your sins see that he died to make you right with God let it be shown that he is yours by being baptized in his name by by joining a healthy church and learn what it is to be led by by the son of God through his Holy Spirit indwelling your soul let's pray